morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Brain Bible Church. For our study this morning, we're going to go back to John 4.24 and focus on the first three words, God is Spirit. I wanted to finish that story of the woman at the well. I didn't want to break it up, so we finished that. Now I want to go back before we continue on in, in, in this gospel. And I want to study, do a study this morning and attempt to answer this question. When believers die, will we have a body in heaven? Now, I used to believe that we would not have a body. All right? I took the fact that the Bible says God is a spirit to mean that He didn't have a body, and so would neither would we. Now, if you don't like what I have to say today, there's a three-part series on our site called The Afterlife, which I take the opposite view. So you can go listen to that. <laughs> And so I'm taking both views, okay? So you can compare them and decide what makes sense to you. I always go back and I read my old stuff and I argue with myself. And it's kind of scary at times, but... Um, so, my, yeah, so my view on this subject has changed since I did that series on the afterlife. And my view changed because I've gotten more information. As I began to study and understand this whole idea of the divine counsel viewpoint, it's changed a lot of things for me. Now, as always... I'm asking you to be Bereans. Don't accept this. Don't reject this. Take this and study it. Do some research for yourself. Make up your own mind. Like I said, if you want a comparison, go read my other stuff or listen to my other stuff. You can compare me with me and see which one you agree with, okay? I guess I win either way, all right? (laughs) All right. So let's look at uh, John 4, 24 here. It says, God is a spirit. Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. Now, saying God is the Spirit is often taken to mean that He doesn't have a body. That's how I always took it. But if we compare this verse with what Lazarus told us earlier in the Gospel, I think we see a different picture here. In John 3, 6, it says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Now, two words are being contrasted here. Flesh and Spirit. In the Greek... It's sarks, flesh, and pneuma, spirit. Now, in Paul's letters, Paul often contrasts these two words, sarks and pneuma. But in the fourth gospel, the contrast appears only here in this verse. Now, if you look at the synoptic gospels, the sarks versus pneuma contrast appears only in Mark at Yeshua's prayer in Gethsemane. Mark says this, keep watching, or Yeshua is saying it, keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation, for the pneuma is willing, but the sarks is weak. So, what is the context of flesh in John 3.16 and in Mark 14.38? Well, I think if you look at this, you see this is talking about human frailty. It's not talking about a sinful nature. It's just the frailty of being human. Until now, man has thought in terms of birth in human terms. The seed of man bears children. Man is begotten by the seed of a human father. He becomes flesh when he's born into the kingdom of this world. But Yeshua tells Nicodemus that a man cannot enter the kingdom of God unless he's been born again, born from above. Earthly life comes to people from normal fleshly births. Heavenly life, eternal life, comes only from the Heavenly Father. And that's what he's talking about when he talks about flesh. Now, notice what he says here. 
that which is born of the Spirit. What's he referring to there? What is that which is born of the Spirit? Well, in this context, he's talking about a Christian. A Christian is that, you know, before we were flesh. We were born of flesh, so we were just flesh. But if we're born of the Spirit, then he says, we are spirit. So this is a Christian. But does that mean that we don't have a body? Because it says a Christian is spirit. Just like God is spirit, a Christian is spirit. We know we have bodies. So I don't think it means that we're without a body. I don't think it means that God is without a body. Same thing. Christian is spirit. God is spirit. Alright? Now, when we look at this here, God is spirit. Who does God refer to here? Okay, we've argued this in the past a lot. Okay, theos, which is God here, is a very nebulous term. It can mean so many different things. But we're taking it here as Yahweh. Okay, so it can be referring to the Father, right? But is the Son Yahweh? Yeah, so it could be referring to the Son also. But it's referring to the Son, the Son's got a body. Right? Could be referring to the Father, could be referring to the Son, could be referring to the Spirit. So saying that God is Spirit doesn't mean He doesn't have a body. It means that He is spiritual versus fleshly. He's not human. He's not natural. He is spiritual. Now, the preterist camp is divided on this issue of having a body after death. I know. Big shock. They're divided on something, right? Preterists have come up with terms like corporate or collective body view, CBV, or immortal body at death view, IBD. And of these two views, there's a lot of variations. But these are kind of two general categories that preterists believe in. Alright? Now, most preterists, the CBV means that you don't get a body at death. They see the body talked about in Scripture as being the corporate body of Christ. And I used to hold the IBD view. And then as I taught through Romans, I moved to the CBV view because I saw so clearly the corporate body. All right, Now I've moved back to the IBD because I see both. I think the Bible talks about the corporate body of Christ over and over. There is no doubt about that. And some Scriptures are clearly talking about the corporate body. But I think the corporate body is made up of individuals with personalities, with spiritual bodies. So I am now in a place where I'm holding both of these views. Clearly see some text talking about corporate, some text talking about individual bodies. The IBD view believes that at death we receive a spiritual or immortal body. So as I said, I am kind of stuck in the middle here holding to both these because I think Scripture teaches both of them. I don't think you have to choose one or another. I think you can get a body and still be part of the corporate body. Alright? I mean, if I'm part of a student body, I got a body and I'm part of the body and I'm an individual part of the body, but I'm part of the student body, the corporate thing all together too. You can't have corporate without individuals. Alright? So now I'm moving, I've moved to the position where I, I think that at death, we receive a spiritual body. And I'm going to try to explain that to you and that's why we read 1 Corinthians because I think there's a lot in this text and if you'll just hang on with me for a while, I'm going to try to develop that this morning, and uh, you can see if you see it or not. I want to read this text again, because this is just a, an incredible text here. He says, if someone should say, how are the dead raised? 
So I think the, the context here is resurrection. What happens when the dead are raised? With what kind of body do they come? And he says, you fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. You understand that? You've got to be dead first. Okay, so keep that in mind as we think about this. You've got to be dead before you get another body. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat, or of something else. But God gives it a body just as He wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh. There's one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another of fish. There's also heavenly bodies, and there's earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one, the glory of the earthly is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So also is it written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. Then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthly. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. All right. He says it is raised a spiritual body. Now, when we think of spiritual body, I know I used to think something like a disembodied spirit, basically a ghost, kind of like, okay? You know, we don't think of corporeal like you could touch it, but I think that's exactly what Paul is getting at here. As I said, I used to think spiritual body was an oxymoron because I thought if it's spiritual, it can't be body because body is material and spiritual material, they don't go together. But that, I, I was wrong, okay? And I'm trying to make a course change here. A spiritual body is a non-fleshly, non-human body, but it's corporeal. It's a body in the spiritual realm. It's a body that can be seen, a body that can be touched. Now, I understand there's a lot of controversy over what Paul means in this text in 1 Corinthians. All right? No doubt. I mean, I've read so many different versions of what people do with this thing. There's a lot of controversy. But what I want to do, I want to do something a little bit different here. I want to try to develop what Paul is saying here from Deuteronomy chapter 4. Because I think Deuteronomy 4 sets the context. That's what Paul's drawing from. And if you understand that, you'll get a different perspective on what's happening here. Now, let me say that much of the material I'm going to be drawing on this morning comes from David Burnett in an article in the Fall 2015 Journal for the Study of Paul and His Letters. This article is titled, So Shall Your Seed Be, Paul's Use of Genesis 15.5 and Romans 4.18 in Light of the Early Jewish Deification Traditions. All right, it's a, it's a theological journal it's a deep article, but he's got a lot of good stuff in there that I think Burnett pulls out that a lot of people have missed. All right, so this long passage that we read in 1 Corinthians 15, it focuses on the metaphor of the resurrection. Everybody's in agreement about that. This is talking about resurrection. It's talking about the sowing of the seed, the seed going in the ground, the seed coming up different. Okay? You have the old body, 
versus the new body in the resurrection. And right in the center, there's this conversation. We have this interesting list of creatures. This comparison between earthly bodies and terrestrial bodies. You see on the, on the top side there, you've got men, beasts, birds, and fish. Those are earthly bodies. And on the bottom, you've got sun, moon, stars. Those are heavenly bodies. So you've got this terrestrial bodies on the earth. You've got these celestial bodies of the sun, moon, and stars. And Paul uses language of the flesh in the first part. All flesh is the same. There's some flesh of men, there's flesh of beasts, there's flesh of birds. He goes all this flesh thing. And then he gets to the second group, and he he describes the second group as glory. There's glory of the sun, there's a glory of the moon, there's a glory of the stars. Alright? Very important to notice this division here in this creaturely text where he's laying out these different creatures. Now, traditionally scholars have said that this creature list comes from Genesis 1 and 2 language. Alright? And it's used there. They see Paul drawing on Adam language. But there's some problems with this view. The actual list of creatures in Genesis doesn't follow this same order. They're in reverse. It's backwards. And not only, they don't follow the same order, but it actually doesn't follow the same pattern of naming the creatures either. But there is a list that follows the same order, and it's found in Deuteronomy 4. Paul goes through and says, man, animals, birds, and fish. And then he talks about celestial bodies. He separates them. The earthly from the celestial. And he says sun, moon, and stars. And Deuteronomy follows this same thing. Well, Deuteronomy doesn't follow it. Paul is following the text from Deuteronomy chapter 4. So let's look at that text. This is Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 20. So watch yourselves carefully, since you did not see any form in the day Yahweh spoke to you from Horeb, from the midst of the fire, so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird, you see the animals he's naming, flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. And beware and do not lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them. Those which Yahweh, your God, has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But Yahweh has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for His own possession as today. Now let me condense this text so you can see it all on the screen. This is the same list in the same order that Paul used it in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, there's a group of texts throughout Deuteronomy that all refer to these celestial powers, the sun, moon, stars, hosts of heaven, as gods or angels over the nations. Now, we read these texts and we think literal sun, literal moon. No, they're referring to the gods. Alright? This passage is about idolatry. It's about not worshiping the powers of these gods. See, Israel was to worship Yahweh. Yahweh's their God. But these gods had been allotted to the nations. Now that's a background for 1 Corinthians 15. It actually follows the same list of creatures. And Deuteronomy also has this division between the earthly creatures and the celestial creatures right after he lists those creatures. Deuteronomy says, And beware, 
All right, he's telling, talking to the Israelites now. Do not lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun, moon, stars, all the hosts of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them. Those which Yahweh, your God, has allotted to all the peoples. This second group in Deuteronomy here, the sun, moon, and stars, are called the hosts of heaven. And he says these were allotted to, or inher- the nations inherited these gods. The nations were to worship these gods. Because Yahweh was done with those people. He said, you will not follow me, you will not obey me. So in Genesis chapter 10, we have the division of nations there. In chapter 11, we got the Tower of Babel. And God says, I'm done with you people. You just continue to go astray. I'm done with you. And so in chapter 12, he calls Abraham. And he starts all over. So Israel is his people. All right, They are the people of Yahweh. But these nations, he was done with them. So he says, "Don't those gods have been allotted to them. All the people that are under heaven. Now, this is part of the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. I think you're familiar with that. We'll get to that. But let's look at Deuteronomy 17, 2 and 3. If there is found in your midst, in any of your towns, which Yahweh your God has given you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of Yahweh your God by transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them or the sun or the moon or any of the heavenly hosts, which I have not commanded. So this, these people have gone and they've served these other gods and they worship them. And here he names the sun, moon, the heavenly host. This is repeating the same language from Deuteronomy 4. But here it's sun, moon, and heavenly host instead of sun, moon, and stars because the heavenly host and the stars are synonymous. And notice that the heavenly hosts are called other gods. They went and served other gods and they worshiped them, gods who they have not known, who they have not been allotted to them. Here's this allotment language. We see it again, same language from Deuteronomy 4. And these gods had been allotted to the nation. Now this idea climaxes in the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. Hopefully you're familiar with this text. But when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, this is again, Genesis 10-11, he separates the nations, he gives the nations their allotment or their inheritance. When, when he divided mankind, there were 70 nations listed in Genesis 10. There were 70 gods he put over them. He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. So he took these nations and he allotted them gods to be over them. Then he says, but Yahweh's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. Israel are his people. That's why over and over and over in Scripture says, Yahweh, the God of Israel. He's Israel's God. He's not the God of these other nations. They got their own gods because they wouldn't follow Him. They wouldn't listen to Him. So the sons of God here is used of other gods, as is the host of heaven, as is the stars. So why is Paul drawing on this from Deuteronomy? Well, I think it's because in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is talking about the resurrection. By using Deuteronomy, he is showing us that the resurrection is about an actual change of nature. These celestial bodies that Paul is listing are not just inanimate objects. In the Jewish cosmology, in the Jewish view of the cosmic orders, these are actual deities. These are beings. 
And not just beings or creatures, but specifically the language of the sun, moon, and stars is used for the gods of the nations. For the ones who would rule over the nation. Now keep that in your brain. These gods, these deities, are ruling the nations. Mark that. Coming back to it. Okay? Paul in 1 Corinthians has already drawn on the Deuteronomy language. All right? Before he gets to 15. We see it in 1 Corinthians 8 through 12. He's dealing with the idolatry issue. He even quotes from Deuteronomy 4 earlier in, his, in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. Look at this text. He says, For even if there are so called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us, for Christians, there's but one God. We don't worship those. The Father from whom are all things, and we exist from him and one Lord, Yeshua the Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist. Through Him. So for Christians, there's but one God, and He's getting this from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35, for it was shown that you might know that Yahweh is God. That's it. There's just Yahweh. There is no other besides Him. And so Paul's already drawn on this Deuteronomy 4 language in 1 Corinthians. So now in first, when you get to chapter 15, he's drawing on it again, and people are aware of that. Now, Paul isn't the only one in Second Temple Judaism to use Deuteronomy 4 in this way. To use this about the gods of the other nations. To talk about these celestial bodies as being actual rulers over the cosmos. Philo actually uses the same exact Deuteronomy 4 passage when he's describing the Jewish view of the cosmos, how the world runs. In his specialized laws, chapter 1, 13, and 19, Philo says this, Some have supposed that the sun and the moon and other stars were gods with absolute powers and ascribed to them the causation of all events. Now he's saying, see, some people think these are the actual top gods. Where they're not, they're just flunkies. He's going to go on to say that. He says, but Moses held that the cosmos was created and is in this sense the greatest of commonwealths, having rulers and subjects. For rulers, all the celestial bodies, fixed or wandering, for subjects, such beings as exist below the moon, in the air, on the earth. So you see, he's got this separation here, just like Deuteronomy 4. He sets it out. You have celestial bodies, and they rule everything under them, under the moon, which is on the earth. Philo goes on to say, The said rulers, however, have not unconditional powers. He's making that clear. See, people think these, are, these rulers got all this power. No, they don't have unconditional powers. They are rulers or lieutenants of the one Father of all, And it's by copying the example of his government, exercised according to justice and law, over all created beings that they acquit themselves aright. But to those who do not describe the charioteer mounted above, attribute the causation of all events in the cosmos to the team that draws the chariots as though they were the sole agents. You see what he's saying? He's actually making fun of the Greeks here. He says, those dumb Greeks, they attribute the guys that are pulling the chariot to the big boss man that's riding on the chariot. They don't understand. They're just doing what he tells them to do. All right? It's the Lord of hosts who's directing these. All right? Philo goes on to say, From this ignorance, our most holy lawgiver would convert them to knowledge with these words. And he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 4. Do not when thou seest the sun and moon and stars and all the hosts of heaven go astray and worship them. He's saying, why would you want to worship them? They're just flunkies. Worship the true God. Worship the living God. 
This is exactly the same language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15. He calls them celestial bodies, same terms that Philo uses. He even calls them earlier in 1 Corinthians rulers, principalities, and powers. And Philo uses all that language. Now, let's look at someone else. Plato. In Plato's Laws, chapter 4, 713 and 738, he says this. Well then, tradition tells us how blissful was the life of men in that age. Finished with everything in abundance and of spontaneous growth, and the cause thereof is said to have been this. Kronos, now Kronos is the high god of time. All right, Kronos was aware of the fact that no human being, as we've explained, is capable of having irresponsible control over all human affairs without becoming filled with pride and injustice. Oh, we so know that, all right? So pondering this fact, he then appointed as kings and rulers for our cities, not men, but beings of a race that was nobler and more divine, namely demons. Now, when we think of demons, we think of the bad ones. You know, they're just using us as divine beings of gods, all right? He uses demons in that sense. He created us as we now, in the case of sheep and herds and tame animals, we do not set oxen as rulers over oxen or goats over goats. But we who are a nobler race ourselves rule over them. In like manner, the God in his love for humanity set over us that the time, the nobler race of demons. So he said, you know, God took this race and he set them over mankind who with much comfort to themselves and much to us took charge and furnished peace for us and modesty and orderliness and justice without stint. And thus they made the tribes of men free from feud and happy. So, you know, God, he, Plato sees it as a God took this race, this deity race, and he set them over mankind to rule them and take care of them. Well, Plato at the end of his critics writes this, In the days of old, the gods had the whole earth distributed among them. There you go, Deuteronomy 4. By allotment. There was no quarreling, for you cannot rightly suppose that the gods did not know what was proper for each of them to have. Alright? So, he understands this, you know, allotment and people being allotted to certain gods. And he's writing hundreds of years before Philo. So, in 1 Corinthians 15, we have this creature list tied in with the resurrection because their ultimate deliverance, the people's ultimate deliverance from under these gods was going to happen in the resurrection. That's the tie-in. Their resurrection is also a key element to them displacing the gods of the nation and replacing them, becoming the reconstituted divine council under the one true God. So in the resurrection... These gods are going to be done away. They're going to be judged. They're going to be replaced by believers. We see this taught in Psalm 82. Psalm 82, divine counsel passage. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Yahweh in Psalm 82 is reviewing the performance of the gods. And He judges them as condemned because they're not being faithful in their ruling. They're not ruling justly. They're not ruling rightly. They're supposed to copy the rule of the Father of all. They're supposed to rule in justice and keep order. And they're not. So in the last verse of the text, he says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. Now, who is the God here is to judge the disobedient gods in the earth? Well, in the Septuagint, the word arise here is anasta. And in the Greek, 
That term is used in the New Testament every time for the resurrection. So, arise, be resurrected, O God. What God is resurrected? Well, this is speaking of Yeshua. Yeshua is to rise, and Yeshua is going to judge these gods. He arises in the resurrection. He judges these gods to put down their wrong, unjust rule. All right, back to 1 Corinthians. Let's see if we can tie a few of these things in. But someone will say, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? So, what kind of bodies? I mean, what do we get? Do we come out just like this? Do we go in the same way and come out the same way, or is it something different? He says, you fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So, there has to be a death here, and the death here is a physical death. Once you die, you don't get a new body until you are dead, all right? You don't get two at the same time, all right? So, that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps a wheat, or something else. But God gives it a body just as He wished. And to each seeds a body of its own. Alright, so these seeds each get a body. Now, believers are from the man of heaven, He says, which is the life-giving Spirit. So when He's giving us that Spirit, that's life-giving. That's the seed. And when that old humanity goes back to the dust, You're going to return to dust from dust you were created. That whole issue is death. They go down, they die, the seed's planted. And what comes out the other side? The celestial. Not the same thing that went in the ground. He says all flesh is not the same flesh. There's one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another of fish. These fleshly creatures are the ones, as we saw from Deuteronomy 4, that are ruled over by the celestial creatures. And so this is not just a question of the nature and the kind of stuff bodies are made out of. It's also talking about their actual roles. These fleshly creatures, the humans, the animals, the fish, the birds, are all the first order from Deuteronomy 4. And then the next order is the glorious ones, the sun, the moon, and the stars, the ones who rule them. Look at verse 40. There is also a heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, the glory of the earthly is another. Now, there's a real problem here. Glory is the language he used for the celestial creatures. They are of glory. This text does it injustice because the word glory is not found a second time in the text. There's no second glory. Glory is the language he uses only for the celestial creatures. They are of glory. So we don't see it a second time. The heavenly has the glory. Listen, the earthly does not. The glory of the celestial is one, of the earthly is another, is how it should be read. But translators add another glory here. But that's wrong because Paul doesn't use that for the earthly. He never does. The glory of the celestial, one, the earthly is another. So glory is important in this text, and understanding it's only for the heavenly. Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It's sown a perishable body, it's raised an imperishable body. See, what is sown perishable is raised imperishable. That's us. Okay, that's why I said when the song says we are a vapor, not really. We are imperishable. Okay? And these are terms used by Philo and other Jews to describe the gods. Imperishable was a term to describe the gods. Because the gods are imperishable. Now the Stoics use that language to talk about the pneumatic beings, the spirit beings. They're imperishable. Whatever that body is made of, it's made of stuff. It is imperishable. Just like those beings who were imperishable. So Paul is saying that believers will be like the gods. 
That's really important. That's what Paul's trying to tell us here in the resurrection. You're going to be like the gods. Look at Revelation 2.26. Speaking of believers, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, I will give him authority over the nations. Those were the gods ruling over the nations. Now he says, guess what, believers? You're going to replace them. You're going to rule over the nations. Look at what Yahweh's promised to Abraham. Genesis 15.5 And he took him outside, Abraham, and he said to him, Look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Now many scholars insert the term numerous or related term into their translation of this text so it reads like this, So numerous shall your descendants be. Instead of rendering the Greek, So shall your seed be presupposing the quantitative reading as the only viable interpretation. You know, that's just what he's talking about here. Well, a number of early Jewish interpreters of Genesis 15.5 understood this patriarchal promise of being multiplied as the stars of heaven, not merely quantitatively, but also qualitatively. That is, their seed would become star-like, assuming the life of the gods so shall your seed be. You're going to be like these gods, he's saying. Now, in commentating on Genesis 15.5, in Who is the Heir? Page 86 and 87, Philo says this, When the Lord led him outside, he said to him, Look up into heaven and count the stars, if thou can count the sum. So shall be thy seed. Well, does the text say, So, not so many. That is, of equal number to the stars. For he wishes to suggest not number merely, but a multitude of other things, such as tend to happiness, perfect and complete. The seed shall be, he says, as the ethereal sight spread about before him. Celestial, that is, full of light, unshadowed, and pure as that is. The night is banished from heaven and darkness from ether. It shall be the very likeness of the stars." So the promise of Genesis 15.5, as far as Philo is concerned, entails being transformed into beings full of light. Being the very likeness of the stars and participating in their celestial life. It is raised an imperishable body. And so I think what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15 is that in the resurrection, we will be like the gods. This is deification language. So the common belief of the Second Temple period was that in the resurrection, we would be like gods. And they believed, they all believed, that the gods had bodies. Now there's actually a considerable amount of literature in terms of the ancient texts where writers talk about the gods and the stuff they're made out of because they appear in bodily form. There's a lot of discussion on it. We're not going to get into all that. But in Paul's day, uh, the Gentiles of the Greco-Roman culture and the Jews both believed that the gods had bodies. There were certainly spirit beings, but when they interacted with people on earth, they took on form. They took a physical form. It wasn't flesh and blood. It was something else. They were made of something superior to flesh and blood. Now, M. David Litwa in his book called We Are Being Transformed, subtitled Deification in Paul's Soteriology. And if you want to run out and grab that book, I think it's only like $170, okay? 
Yeah, it's one of the cheaper ones, all right? Uh, awesome book, but, you know, it, it is definitely not cheap. He's got a full chapter in it on the bodies of the gods in both Jewish texts and Greco-Roman texts. Uh, Aphrodite, for instance, is said to have been born of the immortal flesh or the skin of Uranus. Uranus is the Greek word for the heavens, so he's born of the, she's born of the heavenly ones. It's a deity name in Hesedid and the Theogony and other Greek literature. So they have this idea of these gods having bodies. The Roman gods could, could be depicted in physical form. They often were. I think we're familiar with mythology and all these Roman gods and the bodies that they had because they were thought to actually have some sort of embodiment, some sort of corporeal, particularly and especially when they're interacting with human affairs. They don't just show up like a light beam and, you know, talk. they're showing up in a body and they're talking to people. All right, more importantly is what did the Israelites believe? I think that's what we really are concerned about. Well, Benjamin Summers, in his book called The Bodies of the Gods, shows that the Israelite thinking, and in wider ancient Near Eastern thinking, the gods could exist in more than one form simultaneously. Summers is big on the idea of gods can be embodied. He has lots of evidence for it, both from the Hebrew Bible and outside ancient Near East and other ancient Eastern religions. All right, so in the Scripture we see Yahweh embodied. So we know that the writers talked about embodiment of the gods, and again, we're concerned with the Jews believe, but more important, what does the Scripture teach? So let's look at some things from Scripture here. In the Scripture, first of all, we see that Yahweh was embodied at times. All right, For example, in Genesis 12, 6 and 7, we're told that Yahweh appeared to Abraham. 18, 1 and 2. It says, Now Yahweh appeared. How did he do that? Again, a light ray, a cloud of smoke. What was it? No, he saw a man. To him by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day, when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing there. Oh, so he sees three what? They look like men. Opposite him, and when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth. So here Yahweh and two angels appear to Abraham, and they appear as men. Go down in the text, verse 8. He took curds and milk, and the calf which he had prepared, and placed it before them, between these three, for these three men, and he was standing by them under the tree as they Eight. What's going on here, people? Abraham is meeting with Yahweh. And they have a meal together. Now, if you can even fathom this, God shows up and we're having a meal together. In this text, Yahweh has a body. Now, we saw several weeks ago from Ezekiel 1 that Ezekiel sees a human figure seated on the throne. He calls that figure the glory of Yahweh. So the glory is a human figure seated on the throne in Ezekiel 1. The glory has form. It's not just some kind of light or just some form of spirit. So the glory isn't just light. It's not just cloud in the Tanakh. The glory of the Lord can speak of a bodily form. Now this is going to be backdrop for what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians because Paul doesn't just use the phrase spiritual body. He also uses phrases like heavenly man and glory to describe that body. And Paul's pulling on the Tanakh. So we see that Yahweh is often described as having a body throughout Scripture. Does he have to have a body? No. He can appear in several different forms at the same time. 
All right? Not only does Yahweh appear in body, but so do the sons of God. Look at this text in Genesis 6, 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also were afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children of them, those who were mighty men, were of old, men of renown. Now the sons of God here refers to rebellious divine beings from Yahweh's heavenly host who were called watchers. They've taken the form, a human-like form of creatures, and these gods had sex with women and they produced an offspring. So I think it's safe to say that these gods had bodies. Alright? These sons of God had bodies. Let me read you something from Michael Heiser here about this text that I think is extremely important. Because you know what? It doesn't matter what you think this text means. What matters is what do the writers of Scripture think this text means? Because you can come up with your 21st century version of, well, I think it's this, right? No, what did they believe? The people who wrote the Bible. What did they think about these things? So Heiser says this, very important. Heiser says 99% of Second Temple Judaism. These were all the people who wrote the Scripture. This is their understanding. Second Temple Judaism believed that the reason wickedness so permeates the earth is not so much an extension and in large part not even linked to what happened with Adam and Eve, but the reason that people are always and universally thoroughly wicked is because of what the watchers did. Everybody, all right, everybody in Paul's day, in Paul's circle, Everybody in Second Temple Judaism, with the exception of four intertestamental references, in intertestamental literature, everything says that the reason for the proliferation of evil is the sin of the watchers. Everything. Heiser says you can only find four texts in all of the pseudepigrapher and all of intertestamental writing, all of it. The Apocrypha, the Pseudepigrapha, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Four, only four texts that attribute the sinfulness of man to Adam and Eve. Everybody else is blaming the watchers in Genesis 6 for what's going on. So they saw Second Temple Judaism held a supernatural view of the world. They saw Genesis 6 as the gods coming down and having sex and corrupting human women. Enoch goes into great detail about this, what these angelic beings, what these watchers taught the humans and how they corrupted them. This is what people believe. Now today, we've gotten far away from that. Oh no, the sons of God are this, or sons of God are that. Well, look at what Job tells us about the sons of God. God is speaking. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Well, tell me if you've got understanding. You know everything. Tell me. Explain it to me. Who set its measurements? Since you know. You know, God's using sarcasm here. You got that, right? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Here, morning stars and sons of God are the names of divine beings, divine council members, gods. Now, some folks see sons of God as humans. I read something this week that was, you know, they were saying the sons of God is a reference to the corrupt priesthood. Really? So the corrupt priesthood was there in creation. 
Before the world was created, the corrupt priesthood was there shouting for joy as the world was created. And so Paul and other writers are promising us that when in the resurrection, we'll get to be like the corrupt priesthood. Well, that's a, oh, that's not so exciting. No, sons of God are deities here. All right? You've got to see that. Somehow someone needs to explain to me how any human being was here at creation when God created all this. So Yahweh is often seen in bodily form. I think we're familiar with that. You know, the watchers, the sons of God, have been seen in bodily form. They come in bodily form. How about the angels? Look at what Yeshua answered to the Sadducees here. He says, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. This text affirms the reality of an afterlife. It doesn't give us a whole lot of detail about the afterlife, but it affirms that there is one. By afterlife, I mean the continuation of spiritual life in heaven after physical death. So I'm using afterlife and heaven, they're interchangeable. He says, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Now this verse says the same thing that Genesis 15.5 says. It says the same thing Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. In the resurrection, we're going to be like the gods. Now the word angels here is a lower rank than watchers. Than some, there's ranks of these heavenly beings, and they're listed in ranks, and the angels are kind of the bottom rank. All right? Now the word like here in this text, we're going to be like the angels, is a comparative adverb which draws a similar but not exact comparison. So in what way are believers in the afterlife going to be like the angels? Well, we're not going to marry. After physical death, there's no marriage. In heaven, men become spiritual beings like the angels. In marriage is for now, it's not for heaven. Secondly, Luke's account also tells us that we cannot die. Alright, we cannot die. In that sense, we'll be like the angels. Notice what Yeshua says here in Luke 20, 36. For neither can they die anymore. For they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now look what he says here. They're like angels and they are sons of God. Like angels is from the Greek word esongelos. Esongelos is is angel-like. That's what it means. They're angel-like. They're similar to supernatural beings called angels. But then he says, but they are sons of God. And are is a me here, which means to have a quality of being of the sons of God. We're similar to angels, but we're sons of God. We're superior to angels. And guess what Paul says in 1 Corinthians? Don't you know that you shall judge angels? Why? Because you're superior in the resurrection. They're lower ranking spiritual beings. Resurrection brings one to a state where he or she is a son of God and never will again experience death. It is raised an imperishable body, he says. So we'll be like angels, but we will be sons of God. Now as believers, we replace the divine counsel. We will rule over the nations. We are sons of God. Now I used to believe that angels were incorporeal. I thought angels didn't have bodies. And one of the reasons I believe this is because they're called ministering spirits in Hebrews chapter 1. And I took spirits to mean incorporeal. 
But it seems like every time we see angels in Scripture, they have a form you can see. They have a body. Look at John 20, verse 12. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the feet and the other at the head where the body of Yeshua had been lying. Now here Mary sees two ministering spirits, right? They're dressed in white. What did they put the clothes on? I mean, they got clothes on. They appear. And notice, they're sitting. How do you tell the spirit sitting or standing? They have bodies. They, <laughs> yeah, if the spirit's wearing clothes, I guess you can tell by the way the clothes fold it. They must be sitting spirits. No, they had a body. Alright? So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul draws from Deuteronomy 4, showing us that in the resurrection, we will put on the body of the gods. Believers will replace the divine counsel. We will judge angels. So it is my AT&T position at this time, okay? AT&T, at this time, that believers when they die are given a spiritual body as we move into that spiritual realm. It's a body like the gods had. Now Christians are going to put on the body of the gods. So when you get to heaven, it's not just going to be a bunch of spirits floating around or anything like that. They're going to be glorified believers who are going to have bodies and share that same stuff as the gods. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians draws on Deuteronomy 4. He wants us, talking about the resurrection, he wants to connect it with these gods because they understood these gods that body. And he wants to say, this is what's going to happen. You are going to be deified in the resurrection. You are going to become a god. And you come to the New Testament, and what does Paul tell us? You are sons of God. Well, that doesn't mean anything if you don't know the Tanakh, but if you know the Tanakh and you know what the sons of God are, they're divine beings, they're the watchers. He said, you're going to be sons of God. And over and over in the New Testament, we are called saints, right? That's a bad translation. Saints is a bad translation. Because it isolates it to the New Testament. See, because if you go back into the Tanakh, the divine council is called the Holy Ones. And you get to the New Testament. And Paul calls us Holy Ones. It all connects together, people. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank You this morning for the opportunity to look at the Scripture. I pray, Father, that You would give us the heart of Bereans that we would not accept things that are new, we would not reject things that are new, we would study things that are new. Give us the heart to dig into this, Lord, and to understand it. Father, it's incredible to realize that we are sons of God. Oh, Lord, it is amazing. Continue to teach us, Lord. Help us to grow in our understanding of who we are, that we may give glory to You continually and always. Thank You, Father. Amen. Amen.